Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. Then Darius the king made a decree, and a search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree. Concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits. The three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now, therefore, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house, let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require. Let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put a hand out to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shether Bozani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month in Adair, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'd really encourage you, as uh, going back to that last announcement, I'd encourage all of you to participate in the Leadership Institute. In one sense, that title itself can be a little bit intimidating. If you're particularly thinking, well, I'm never going to be an MC leader or never, don't think God is going to call me to that. Uh, that's not the only reason why we're having the Leadership Institute. We are having it uh, for uh, you uh, purely to, to help you in terms of whatever place of leadership that you are in. And... Uh, 
every one of us are leaders in some, some place. Uh, it might be uh, informally, a lot of times, many times informally, but uh, also formally. And I believe that if you come and enjoy this time once a week, uh, we're taking away our MC gatherings in order to, get, to kind of free up your time a little bit, that you will uh, find the time uh, valuable and worthwhile. And so I encourage you beginning this week to please um, consider coming to the uh, Leadership Institute, even if you don't think you're going to be a MC leader in the, in the future. Well, um, perhaps you can relate to, to my story. Uh, about 10 years ago, Tamara and I were on, uh, in the market for a used car, and we found on a, a dealership's lot, we found a blue van, light blue van. Never had seen this beautiful color of, uh, of a van. And so uh, the price was right, uh, the mileage was acceptable, and so we drove home our uh, new-to-us uh, beautiful blue van. Well, I was so proud. I was so proud of the, this, this vehicle, uh, particularly this color, uh, thinking, I bet we are the only one who has this car, this color of a car in, in, the, in the city that we lived in. Well, about 24 hours later, um, I'm driving along, and there is somebody else who has the same van, same color. And I thought, wow, they have really good taste. And then I saw another, and then I saw another, and another, and another. I saw these vans everywhere I looked. See, they were always present, but I wasn't aware until I purchased my van, and of course, then became, I became extremely aware uh, of this uh, van and of these colors. They were all there. I just wasn't aware of them. Well, I think that is what has happened since Justin preached on anxiousness um, several weeks ago. I have seen a lot more about anxiety uh, than, uh, than I ever thought was possible. Everywhere I look, last Monday, a new Art of Manliness podcast on anxiety. Um, a free daily online devotion popped up while I was working on this message. I was on Bible Gateway, and it popped up and said, here's your devotional for anxiety. Um, a weekly highlight of new books. I get these every week. A weekly highlight of new books at Westminster Bookstore. Uh, and guess what? Titles on anxiety. And of course, a news feed uh, stories on anxiety. Matter of fact, just, just type in anxiousness in your, uh, in your uh, uh, search bar and look at the news feed. And here are the headlines that popped up for me. Biden addresses an anxious world as Putin makes nuclear threats. A sea of tears. Group helps anxious, anxious mothers of Russian soldiers. Or anxious about transitioning into a new normal? What you can do. And then even seemingly uh, non-anxious uh, non moments, Prince Harry's awkward and anxious body language at the U.S. awards ceremony. And then I like this idea. Dentists use dogs for anxious patients. I assume the dogs aren't doing the dentistry. Um, I don't know. Well, anxiety, it's defined this way. It is an uneasy state of mind, usually over the possibility of an unanticipated or an anticipated misfortune or trouble. 
And what we're going to find today in Ezra chapter 6 is that it speaks to, an, an, to anxiety, and it does it this way. The providence of God is the foundation for courage in an anxiety-ridden world. The providence of God is the foundation for courage in an anxiety-ridden world. A life of courage built off of God's providence. And what I want to do this morning as we look at Ezra chapter 6 verses 1 through 15 is I want to make four observations about the providence of God. But before we do that, we need to have a definition here. So let's begin with a definition from the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563, one of the Reformed catechisms that we would recommend for you to, uh, to, to become uh, knowledgeable of. It does a decent job of communicating biblical truths. But here's the question, question number 27, what do you understand? understand by the, by the providence of God? Answer, the almighty everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures, and so governs them that, uh, governs them that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Very simple. Life is not ruled by chance. So, the providence of God is his everywhere present power by which he rules all things by his fatherly hand. Now, think about it. How God's providence has already worked in our story from last week. So Justin took us, back to, uh, took us back to the prophet Haggai, who was the contemporary to the events recorded in Ezra, war, uh, Ezra's, uh, recorded in Ezra and, and the work on the temple had stopped. And so what does God do? But he sends two prophets. He sends the prophet uh, Haggai, and then he sends the prophet Zechariah. And this is what Haggai says to God's people. Uh, Haggai chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. He says, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. prophet. It is time for you yourselves to dwell in is it time uh, for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. I've have, I have one of those bags. <laughs> he continues, uh, verse 7, Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the, and build the house, that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. Now, do you see the providence of God there, particularly in verses 10 and 11? Now, go back. We're going to go back to that definition. Go back to the definition found uh, in the Heidelberg Catechism. 
Now that definition is this. The almighty, everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hands, he still upholds heaven and earth with all creatures and so governs them that herbs and grass, rain and droughts, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. So how is it fatherly for God to use, using Haggai's words, withhold the dew and the earth to withhold its produce and for him to call a drought on all the land and the hills and the new grain, the new wine and the oil. How's that fatherly? See, we see the providence of God and, and what he was doing with God's people as they were in disobedience to him, but how is that a fatherly act on our behalf or on their behalf? Well, it's in this way. God's fatherly, kind and wise fatherly, it's a kind and wise discipline. And so last week, Justin took us to uh, that passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, let me just read it for you, beginning at verse 5. It goes this way. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters. For what son or daughter is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illeg illegitimate children and not sons or daughters. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So it was fatherly for God in his providence, the everywhere present power of God, to cause the crops to produce poorly in order to get them off their own personal mission, a personal mission of which they were trying to find satisfaction in but would never find it. And so they would get their eyes on God's mission in order for them to find the satisfaction that they were actually seeking for. And that is why he is fatherly in that discipline. And so in his fatherly love for his own children, the, the returned exiles, he, he put them on kind of a fast forward of the dissatisfaction that they might turn back to him and his soul-seeking, soul-satisfying mission. And it worked. And it worked. And they turned back to the mission. So now let's go back to Haggai chapter 1, and I'm going to continue uh, verse 12. Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltil, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people feared the Lord. And then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. 
And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And do you see there that the providence extends to the spirit of man? So that verse 14, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnants of the people. So this is the grace of God where we have it now in the New Testament expression of it, we find in Philippians chapter 2 verse 13 where God says, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. But what is truly remarkable that we see in today's passage is that this providence extends to all people, not to just God's people, but to all people, people in your life, those who are in opposition, those who are ignorant, and those who are indifferent. And so we're going to make four observations but before we do, let's ask God for help. <laughs> Father, help. Help us, Father, today as we come to your word. We pray that you would be speaking to our lives, that, Father, uh, the distractions that are around us, that you would minimize those, that you'd get us laser-focused into who you are. Because, Father, I am convinced, we are convinced that what we need is we need to see you more clearly. And in seeing you more clearly, that we would love you more. And out of loving you, Father, we'd be obedient to you in whatever you have for us this day and this week. So God, please be at work, we pray. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Providence of God is the foundation for courage in an anxiety-ridden world. So first observation about God's providence, number one, God's providence uses unlikely instruments to accomplish his mission. God's providence uses unlikely instruments to accomplish his, uh, his purposes. So beginning with those in opposition to God's purpose. So read again verses one through five. Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ekbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found which this was written, a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height should be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. And let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. And let, also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its own place, and you shall put them in the house of God. Those in opposition to God's purposes, number one man, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. It is God who directs the hearts and minds of pagan rulers, rulers who are in opposition to the living God, to bring judgment on his people. He did this with Nebuchadnezzar. 
God, through Jeremiah, after recounting how he had warned his people over and over to be obedient to his commands, this is what uh, Jeremiah uh, says uh, in Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 7 through 9. He says, God says, you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, because, uh, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Later on in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 51, verse 20, we learn that God had a name for, for Babylon. He called Babylon his hammer. Those in opposition to God's people, God was using as his hammer. God's providence uses unlikely instruments to accomplish his purposes like those who are in opposition to God's people. And you have people in your life who are in opposition of you and of the gospel. And God uses them. He uses unlikely individuals also who are ignorant. So those who are ignorant to God's purposes. Back to our passage. Tataniah was most likely an, uh, an official responsible to carrying out the will of the provincial ruler, and so he was a bureaucrat. Um, Shethar Bozani, he, it was possibly a secretary or someone else who had some uh, lesser authority, but in the position of assisting Tataniah. And they arrive in Jerusalem, and go back to chapter 5 uh, in our passage at verse 3. Chapter 5, verse 3. They asked the Jewish leaders, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? Now, this is a reasonable question from someone who's new on the scene and responsible for what is happening within the province. And he, he wants to know if this temple building has official authorization. And then verse 4 they ask this question. What are the names of the men who are building this temple? Now, once again, a reasonable question, although a little bit intimidating. See, these two simply don't know what this project is all about. They're, they are ignorant of the significance of the people, and they're ignorant of the of the significance, or maybe we say, should say the weight of the God for whom this temple is being built. And so God in his providence, he uses these ignorant individuals to write a letter to Darius, who upon receiving the letter instigates a search for the original decree. So when I'm using the word ignorant, I'm just simply using a word in its most simplest form, and that is they have a lack of knowledge or understanding of what's going on. And so God uses them to then get this decree to, for, to, the, to search for the original decree. So thirdly, God's providence uses unlikely instruments to accomplish his purposes like those who are indifferent to God's, to God's mission or God's purpose. And it's these who I think are most tragic. This is Cyrus and Darius 
both kings of Persia, and it's going to eventually be these bureaucrats as well. See, indifference. Indifference is marked by a lack of interest or enthusiasm for something. It's a state of being aware, so you're on the margins of something, but just not interested to look into those margins. Um, for me, anime, 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 for me, I'm on the margins. Not really interested to get inside. Um, Netflix. This is what Netflix is trying to do. They're trying to take indifferent people and try to make them interested. So what do they do? Well, they have, they have what's popular on uh, Netflix, uh, and then they show you all the you know, covers, and, or trending now on Netflix uh, covers, uh, or top 10 uh, in the US today. I don't know what the difference is between those three different ca categories. They all seem to be about the same thing, right? Um, but what are they doing? What they're doing is you are on the outskirts, you're, on the, you're outside, and you're indifferent at this point, and they're trying to make you jump in. They're, they want you to become interested or enthused. And so here we have Cyrus, who's on the margins. Now, being on the margins, the weight of that something inside the margin determines whether or not you are a fool. So the weight of what's inside is going to determine whether or not you are a fool for taking what you are aware of and doing something with it. If it's not very weighty and you jump in, you may be a fool. Or if it is very weighty and you don't jump in, you may be a fool. And that is the case here for Darius and Cyrus. Here is Cyrus and Darius, both on the margins, on the edge of the God of the universe, and they, rather than investigating the unique claims of this God of Jerusalem, they resign to the accepted thoughts of the day. And I'm gonna, we're gonna look at the unique claims, and we're gonna look at how uh, the accepted thought of is in the day in just a minute. But we need to get a context here of Cyrus. See, it was in 539 BC that Babylon fell to Cyrus, and he was gonna be the king of the next uh, great world empire, Persia. So Cyrus was a great king, and he had a great aspirations. And when he gained control over Babylon, modern-day uh, Iran, uh, he set his eyes as far uh, east as Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he looked, uh, he looked east, which way did I get it wrong? West? Yeah, west, west. And then he looked east with an, his influence as far as India. He was also an enlightened king. And so Cyrus's policy was to give displaced people groups an opportunity to return to their countries and have the right to rebuild the sanctuaries of their regional gods. So it was a realistic policy in that it created the maximum amount of contentment among the peoples of this vast empire. And that is what God's people are enjoying here. It's interesting, the detail given within Cyrus's decree. It starts with uh, the general, uh, look there in verse 3, let the house be rebuilt. And then it goes into some details of heights and breadth and building materials. Uh, and probably these details were given in light of the next reality, verse 4. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury. 
So there was a limit to Persian uh, generosity. The construction was not to exceed a certain size. However, it is also clear that Cyrus wanted credit for its construction, credit to win the goodwill of whoever this deity is, deity is who occupied Jerusalem. So this is good public policy because you begin to think about it. Uh, the royal revenue would be collected by those in the province so the financial burden would not be felt at the capital. <laughs> and so Darius, years later, he continues this enlightened policy. But here is where uh, we find the indifference. See, Cyrus and Darius's policy flowed out of a worldview that recognized that, that there were many gods, many idols, many beliefs, and that they all had equal claim. You believe what you want to believe, I'll believe what I want to believe, let's just all get along. And then they made bumper stickers uh, to go on the back of their chariots, and the common folks got to put it on their wagons, uh, that said, coexist in all of the different religious symbols of the relig regional gods. That's what happened. See, Cyrus and Darius swam in the accepted thought of the day, tolerance. In a world of tolerance, you become indifferent to the claims of the one true God. And that's what happened to Cyrus. See, if we go back to chapter 1, verse 2, here is, here's the proclamation that was made on, as a result of the, um, of the decree that we just read. So Ezra chapter 2 uh, one, verse two. Thus says Cyrus, the king of Persia. Here's the proclamation. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in, which is in Judah. Now, how does he identify God? How does he identify God? The God of what? Stay with me. Thank you. The God of heaven. The God of heaven. See, the proclamation is simply parroting the belief of the Jews, or let's put it this way, the claim of the God of Jerusalem. Unlike all the other gods who claimed earthly territory, Cyrus understood that the God of Jerusalem was claiming authority outside the realm of that earthly territory. This God of Jerusalem was claiming that he was over all the earth, that he was the God of heaven. Uh, a, being a product of a tolerant culture, Cyrus was indifferent to this striking claim. And so was Tataniah and Shethar Bozani, chapter 5 now, uh, in, in their letter to Darius, you go over to chapter 5, verses uh, 11 and 12. Turn in your Bibles, chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And it says this, and this was their reply to us, Tataniah is, 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 is writing, he says, uh, this is what the, the Jews said to us, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth. So they had heard, and they had wrote down, and Darius had read these claims. This is the God who's claiming to be God, not a regional God, not a God of the earth, but a God of heaven and earth. 
Cyrus, Darius were on the margins looking into the claims of this God of Jerusalem, claims that were astonishing, but rather than investigating, they were indifferent. And how tragic. Indifference to the one and only God thrives in a world of tolerance. People just become indifferent. And that's the world we live in today. Now, it seems the only way to get to the attention of people in a tolerant society is a claim of exclusivity. A claim of exclusivity. Like this one. We're going to read it later at the very end, but let me read it for you now. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That gets people's attention. And we cannot shy away from that claim. We cannot shy away from the claims that God says that he is the one who is the God of heaven and earth and is the one who has all authority in heaven and that he has given us a book and he has given within that book words of which are saying exclusive statements about how the world runs and looks because he is the creator. And we know that when we do that, when we make these exclusive claims of which God is the one who is the authority and the one which we must come to to be saved, we know what's going to happen. We are going to be, we are going to be in the crosshairs of the opposition. And some are going to be indifferent, some are going to be angry, and others are going to be intrigued and investigate. See, God uses all kinds. He uses unlikely instruments to accomplish his purposes, unlikely instruments to potentially cause us anxiety. But what we see here is that anxiety-inducing instruments are just that. They're instruments in the hand of God to accomplish his purposes. The providence of God is the foundation for courage in an anxiety-ridden world. Well, number two, the second thing we can observe about God's providence is that God's providence can be hidden. God's providence can be hidden, but never hindered by opposition. It can be hidden, but never hindered by opposition. See, if you go back to chapter 5 again in, in Ezra, Haggai and Zechariah, they, they brought hard words to the disobedient hearts of God's people. And what we saw last week was that actually the hard words, words created soft hearts. God's people responded in obedience, yet their circumstances did not change. Matter of fact, a dark cloud came over the work. There was a threat of the work being shut down. Now, I want you to put yourself in the shoes of the exiles. See, God has done a convincing, convicting work in their hearts. He has stirred them to repentance and to faith, seen in their subsequent obedience. Now, our human expectation is that obedience will be rewarded with smooth waters, at least for a time. But rather than smooth waters, God gives their obedience. He gives them more opposition. 
So what do you do when it seems like the opposite of the Heidelberg Catechism definition of God's providence, and it seems that instead of God being an ever-present power, God seems to be nowhere to be found? Well, you know and trust in his name. You know and trust in his name. See, that's, uh, look how Darius describes the God of this temple in our passage now in verse 12. Haggai, uh, so, sorry, uh, Ezra chapter 6, verse 12. The God who caused his name to dwell there. His name. Now, what is interesting here is the description of why the temple was to be built. Uh, unlike the common worldview of the day, unlike Darius's own understanding of the many regional gods, the God of Israel did not by necessity need a temple. Uh, he, he did not need, because he had no physical need, to dwell inside a temple. Rather, he chose to cause his name to dwell there. Now, this is significant for several reasons. First, uh, these are exactly the words from Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 5. As God's people are getting ready to go into uh, the promised land, this is what uh, God tells them. He says, you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name. And so then Solomon, years later, in a kind of a majestic way, in, the, in his dedication prayer for the temple, I'm just going to let you hear in on his prayer. First Kings chapter 8. Uh, this is how uh, Solomon uh, prays. Will God indeed dwell in the earth? Behold, heaven and highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas, O Lord my God, and listen to the cry and to the prayer that your servant prays before you this day, that your eyes may be open night and day toward this house, the place which you have said, my name shall be there. That you may listen to the prayer that your servant offers towards this place and listen to the plea of your servant and your people Israel when they pray toward this place and listen in heaven, your dwelling place. And when you hear, forgive. See, as far as the temple was concerned, King Solomon knew that he could never put God in a box, even a box as big and as beautiful as the temple of Jerusalem. The idea was absurd. God is transcendent. He is high above the heavens. God is immense. His invisible being fills the entire universe. So the temple does not have the capacity to contain this great God. But he could put his name there. His name is the summation of his character. So what do we do when it seems like he is nowhere to be found? Well, we fixate our hearts on his name. That is his character. And trust in who he has revealed himself to be. And then, we courageously stay the course of obedience. We courageously stay the course of obedience. See, the very rebuke and, and call to get back to work by the prophets was the very thing they needed in response to God being hidden by this opposition. If you go again back to, to chapter 5, verse 5, um, look what it says there. Chapter 5, verse 5. 
the eye of their God was on the elders of the Jews. And these bureaucrats, they did not stop them until reports should reach Darius and then an answer be returned by letter concerning it. See, what the, the elders didn't know that. All they knew was opposition. And yet, the eye of their God was on them. They didn't see it. Didn't feel like it. They courageously stood the course of obedience. William Cooper, spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, was a believer and a phenomenal poet and hymn writer. Born in 1731 and he died in the year 1800. He was also a man who knew the dark clouds of depression. In his lifetime, he had four major battles with mental breakdowns. He repeatedly attempted suicide. But each time, God providentially prevented him. And it's this man who wrote these words of this hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. God moves in a mysterious way. He wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take the clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purpose will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. God's providence can be hidden. And this is what can cause anxiety. So what do we do? We know and trust the name. Stay the course of courageous obedience. Providence of God yields the foundation for courage in an anxiety-ridden world. Four, number three, God's providence always works for the good of his people. God's providence always works for the good of his people. Here at Sacred City, we many times in our profession of faith profess the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, and it goes like this. What is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. I emphasize all things. And that's what the exiles find here. Look back now at verses 6 and 7 in Darius' response uh, to, these, uh, to these two individuals. Now therefore, Tataniah, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozani, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. 
Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of this God, uh, of, of this, uh, on its sites. Now, uh, look at that next word, verse 8, one word, great word, moreover. Moreover. <laughs> moreover. Darius is committed to supporting the work in an even greater way. See, God uses opposition. That could be difficulties. That could be trials in your life. That could be individuals. He uses oppositions uh, to do an even greater work than would be possible without that opposition. So, verse 8 Moreover, I make a decree regarding, regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river. Cyrus had already decreed a guaranteeing funding. Now Darius goes further with ensuring that this funding is paid immediately and in full. But Darius' generosity goes beyond the physical project to the actual worship of God, verses 9 and 10. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings for the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let it be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. See, Darius wants to cover all his bases and make sure that he is in the favor of every god in his empire, including the god of Jerusalem, so that God's providence even uses false motives for the good of his people. Darius then turns to the, the, the protection, verses 11 and 12. And I also make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impelled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. Okay, that's a little bit intimidating. Um, May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who, who shall put a, ha a hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all, with all diligence. This is, there's po poetic justice here. And when Darius decrees that a beam from the violator's own house would be the source for the impalement pole for messing with the house of God. <laughs> See, the king's reply now puts the temple builders in a far stronger position than before. It gave Zerubbabel, the governor, and Jeshua, the priest, and the elders all the benefits of state money and protection without state interference. Verse 6. Keep away. Keep away. God's providence always works for the good of his people. Way beyond what we can imagine. God's providence is working in your life for your good way beyond you can even imagine. Fourth observation. Last one. God's providence works through the ordinary means of diligence. God's providence works through the ordinary means of diligence Verses 13 through 15. Then, according to the words sent by Darius the king, Tataniah, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Buzani, and their associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Udu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Xerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year in the reign of Darius the 
king. See, this word diligence is found several times in these two chapters. Chapter 5, verse 8, it was reported that God's people were diligently attending to the work of the temple. And then there's the implied diligence to the search that was made by Darius for the original decree uh, of Cyrus. Darius calls for his decree, verse 12, to be done with diligence. And these two bureaucrats, Tataniah and Shethrobozani, were giving diligence to what Darius the king had ordered. See, God's providence was using the ordinary means of the Haggai prophet fulfilling their calling, of the elders' oversight of the work, of the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, the skilled laborers and the general laborers. The providence of God doesn't cut man out of responsibility, but rather employs his saints, and as we have seen, sinners. And it's this foundation that gives us courage in an anxiety-ridden world. And matter of fact, the providence of God is the foundation for the courage that we find in the apostles. It was the very fact that God used the most likely instruments in the darkest moment of their life that hid God's hand, that turned out for the eternal good far beyond they could imagine, and that while they were cowardly and fled, there was one who was diligent on their behalf. And he hung on a cross. These realities became the foundation for their courage. So when given a chance to explain their courage to the opposition, here's what we read, Acts chapter 4, before these rulers. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Christ of Nazareth, whom you have crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. This stone has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then, having been released, they return to their friends and report all that happened which they prayed. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Psalm 2, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth are set, set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Unlikely individuals, Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever you your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And it didn't seem like the good things were happening there. It was a dark day. They couldn't imagine what was happening on that cross. Far beyond their imagination. Diligently suffering for us. And so he says, and now, Lord, look upon the threats and grants your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. While you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders perform the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place which they would gather together were shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness.
We pass through many difficulties, doubts, temptations, sins that creates anxiety in our lives. We need to be consciously anchored in this gospel every day. See, God's providence secured the work of the cross. So Christian, be courageous to fight against your sins for they are forgiven. It is in the providential work of the cross that we can be absolutely assured that God is for us and not against us in the dark times of life. When in doubt that you are the best person for the job at that moment, whatever God is calling you to do or calling you to be, it is the cross that ultimately shows that God knows what he is doing. You're the right person. He uses ordinary people like Peter and John and the other disciples and you to accomplish his purposes. And as you face opposition and as you are treated unjustly and work with those who don't know or don't care, have courage. Be courageous in what God has put your hand to, knowing and trusting in the providence of God for it is the foundation for courage in an anxiety-ridden world. Father, thank you. We thank you for the cross, Father. We, what resounds most for us is the diligence of Jesus. In that dark day when everybody else fled, he diligently did what you called him to do and died for us, that we might be forgiven, and that we might have hope, and that we might be people who, although in this anxiety-ridden world, anxiety because of what's happening outside of us, outside of our control, anxiety what's happening within us, Father, where there are sin or struggles or temptations, whatever it is, Father, uh, it creates anxiety, but we thank you, Father, that your providence is that which will give us courage to be obedient. We thank you. Father, as we take this cup and as we eat this bread, we are reminded again of what we have broken, you have not. And that is a covenant with us. You have been faithful this past week and you'll be faithful this, this next week even when we are not faithful. So Father, we pray that as we take it, we will not take it lightly. May we be people who repent today of our sins and walk in faith. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.